Hi, I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On today's episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, I sat down to talk with Matt Fyror. Matt is the studio director for ZeniMax Online Studios, and he's the game director for Elder Scrolls Online. Matt went into great detail on how his team has built and maintains an absolutely giant online world. He talked about the balance between systems and hand-created content. He explained the importance of creating engagement metrics to measure the health of the game, and he shared his thoughts on where virtual online worlds might go in the future. For anyone interested in live services games or building online virtual worlds, you're going to want to check this one out. Welcome to the Game Makers Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Makers Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's it's uh, been fun for me to uh, spend some time looking at like a lot of the stuff that you've done in your past. And, and one of the coolest things that I've come across is that you were raised without electricity on a commune. <laughs> so what uh, was that like? That is not not true. Uh, so yes, <laughs> my, uh, my, my parents, um, I was born in DC. Um, and then when I was uh, very young, two or three, we, my parents just left their jobs and uh, we moved to uh, very rural West Virginia with some friends from, uh, from DC and basically lived for at least a few years, kind of uh, subsistence farming. And uh, we, yes, we didn't have electricity for part of that. Uh, those days lasted a, it, four or five years. And then after that, we got electricity and, and, and it turned into a real house. But uh but my parents are still in that area, and they just moved out of that same house just uh, six months ago. So uh, um, it's uh, it was a great place to grow up. I loved it. It was uh, very, very, very low tech, and uh, uh, it's an interesting uh, kind of mirror, uh, opposite mirror to what uh, to what I'm doing now. What was the first appliance that your parents brought into the house once you all had electricity? Um, Wasn't it Atari Twenty Six Hundred? Because that. Would have been appropriate, right? <laughs> no, I was. Too, I'm too old for even that. I think the uh, 2600 wasn't out until I was in my teens. So, uh, um, I think uh, the first one was was probably you know refrigerator or uh, or, or something a little more prosaic. But uh, the first tech that I got. Um, so since um, my parents come from uh, from Baltimore and um, the, they come from families of doctors and so forth. So uh, I have kind of a weird childhood where part of it was spent in uh, rural West Virginia, chopping wood and filling the wood box. Uh, and the other half was uh, kind of visiting my grandparents in Baltimore and doing uh, kind of uh, things that most kids from West Virginia don't get to do. Um, but because of that, I got a TRS-80 in 1979, something like that. Um, and that was... My, I was always um, a weird kid, read a lot of books. Like I read Moby Dick when I was like seven. Uh, I was just this really, really weird. Uh, I read everything and I was totally, totally into tech as it existed then. And so they gave me a, they gave me that uh, for my birthday or Christmas in, in, in 79. And that's kind of where I started on the, the tech journey. 
was it one of the ones where you had to use a cassette drive to oh, save yeah. your programs? Oh, that is so oh, cool. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think two years later, I scraped together enough lawn mowing money and bought uh, the hard drive, or not hard drive, the floppy drive for that, which was like 80K per side. Uh, and it had its, its own power supply and literally sounded like a 747 warming up when you uh, when you plugged it in. But uh, yeah, the, you had to lock it in place because it, it spun so badly that it would shoot the disc out if you didn't uh, if you didn't lock it correctly. So, uh, but yeah, definitely, totally a cassette uh, era basic games where if you wanted uh, if you wanted to play a game, you went to the store and bought the book that had the program in it, and then you typed it in, and then you played Gilgamesh or Oregon Trail. And that was kind of the way the way it worked back then. Well, what a great introduction to game development, right? I mean, you're forced to write your own games if you want to play games. Yeah, and that's and you can't not type a basic program in when you're 12 and not screw around with it. Right. You know, so I don't think I ever played it the way it was supposed to be written. You know, I got the basics down and then we just started, you know, I had some friends too uh, who would come over and we would just kind of figure out cool ways to change things. And, uh, and obviously they, most of them failed miserably, but uh, uh, it was fun. It was, it was, it was almost as much fun typing in the program and figuring out what did what than it was actually playing the game. Were those first few games sort of your, did, did it begin a, a passion for uh, larger sort of story driven games? Yeah, I was, um, I think the, the, I mean, many games had a, had a big impact on me, but the first one that kind of changed my idea of what games could be was Wizardry, uh, the first one. Um, and a friend of mine had an Apple II. And, uh, so that, that changed everything. Cause that was like, oh, this Dungeons and Dragons thing that I've been doing, you know, with, with my friends, I can actually do in a world that is created for me. And, uh, it, it just, it was a total 90 degree turn in my mind towards what you could do on a computer being entertained because it was super deep, super hardcore. Um, and it, it, it really, really uh, taught me what, what you could do. Basically, because I never thought I'd thought of arcade games. And of course, most of the games, even on the TRS-80 back then were arcade-ish. There were some RPGs, but that one was, you know, dozens of hours to play and super complicated. And uh, it, it, it definitely uh, was one of my biggest early influences. I will share that I was also uh, totally stuck on wizardry and uh, in a good way. And yeah, I can still walk through most of that in my head. Yeah. The, the dungeon because it's 10 by 10 grids and there's 10 levels and it, it you know, it's, <laughs> I think I could still probably do it. I played it so much. <laughs> well, so as you grew up and, and eventually went to college, did you, were you continuing to play games? Yeah. Yeah. By then I had, I took my TRS-80 to college and it died a very, very ugly death when I tried to uh, upgrade the RAM Back in those days, you could uh, pull the RAM chips out and uh, put in a second RAM chip and hope that the pins were long enough to go through both of them and then double the RAM. Uh, and uh, it didn't work. So uh, I, I, I plugged it in and it smoked and died. So uh, I had to upgrade then to an Apple II. So uh, this was in 84, 85, something like that. But having an Apple II then did open it up to more and more complicated games. So. Yeah. Um, and college is when I really started to get into the bulletin board modem, uh, 
multiplayer games of the time, which you would now call MUDs, although we never used that term back then because we didn't know what a MUD was. We just had games around DC that you would call into that had eight phone lines and there could be seven other people playing them and you could interact with them. And I spent a lot of time and way too much money playing those. Did I, did your love of MUDs have anything to do with your choice of majors at college or vice versa? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's funny. Uh, uh, before I went to college, uh, my father told me, uh, college is in a trade school. Um, it's clear that you have a lot of interests. Uh, study what you want to study because this next four years are pretty much the only time in your life that you're going to be able to do everything that you want to do um, before you get into the working world. And I really took that to heart. So I mean, I was 18, so I thought I knew everything about computers. So there was no no need for me to go into computer science, which obviously was uh, hugely uh, mistaken. Uh, and I've been paying for it ever since. But uh, uh, I became a history major and I, I was a history major. And so I spent my entire college reading really, really thick uh, books about old cultures and ancient cultures and new cultures. And uh, and in fact, uh, so these some friends and I were playing this this mud uh, called Scepter of Goth. And again, MUD is a specific term based on a specific code base. And I don't know if Scepter of Goth was actually based on that that code base, but uh, it went out of business and we decided to license it because A, we wanted to play it and it would be a lot freer. It would be a lot uh, cheaper uh, licensing it than it was paying by the hour, which is what we had to do. And so we licensed it and we set up our own world in, in on, on one of these servers and we were going to deploy it in uh, Atlanta where a friend of mine was going to college. And then the whole parent company went out of business. They repossessed the thing. They paid us back. And we were like, how hard can it be? We just wrote our own and we just wrote our own from scratch with the knowledge that we had from working on uh, the world. And I used, uh, um, I was in a Mesopotamian history class in that year at school. And I made the first world that I put together was based on you know, Babylon and Akkad uh, and uh, the Akkadian Empire and uh, so forth. So I did actually manage to merge my uh, my history stuff and the game stuff early on. That's pretty impressive. I mean, that that's super cool. And, and what, do you have people ever ask you, hey, Matt, is a college education worth it if I want to go into game development? I do. And that's always a tough question because it depends on the person. Like, Game development now is so much more specialized than it was then, where you could really do anything because of the barrier the barrier to entry was so low back then. Like if you were good and had good ideas, everything was in text. It was easier to program. It was easier to design. Um, but now, like if you want to be a designer, no, you don't have to go to college. Uh, if you want to be an engineer, you better have be very, very, uh, um, very good with your self-taught um, stuff, but we, it, it would be good to have a degree in, uh, in, 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 uh, computer science, if you want to go into programming, like they teach you things there that you can use for engineering and, and the kind of the harder parts of the, the harder science parts of game development. But do you need to go to college? No, you, you can be self-taught in anything. It's a very merit based industry. If you can do it do it. You know, and it's just uh, learning how to do it can be the problem there. There. Well, you you also work on one of the most historically laden games in the industry, right? So having had a, having a history degree, I'm sure it helped in some ways in working on ESO. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I think uh, in many ways I work on the uh, one of the largest uh, fake history uh, projects in the uh, in the history of games. Obviously, Tolkien is probably bigger, but the Elder Scrolls has an immense, immense library of lore and history. And uh, um, it was a lot of fun in the early days, sifting through all of the information. And then as uh, other Elder Scrolls games came out, reading the lore that came out with that and talking to the designers. And it, it's it's a lot of fun. It's uh, um, going through that. Well, I'm always impressed when I, when I play any of the Elder Scrolls games, uh, how deep things go. And, and it really does feel like I could, I could be in a giant library where there's just a never ending, uh, amount of source material that feels authentic, right? Yeah, like it's, it's written deep. by somebody yeah. who knows how to write history. Yeah. It's deep and it makes sense. Yeah. Like, and, um, the critical decision they made early on in Elder Scrolls, which makes it the the amazing world that it is, is there is no, uh, the the whole history is written by unrelatable, uh, the unreliable narrators, right? Right. It's like uh, there is no official history of this actually happened. It's all told through the eyes of books you read um, and it's th- through the eyes of people that were witnessing events. And you don't know 100% if that's actually what happened or not. And sometimes the books contradict each other and sometimes they really contradict each other. And hey, that's actually what happens in real life history when you're doing research because uh, it depends who's telling the story. It kind of the details depend on that. Yeah. And that was actually the the second game that I did uh, a lot of history stuff um, um, back in um, – Right around 2000, uh, when I was at Mythic Entertainment, we worked on Dark Age of Camelot. And that, of course, had King Arthur legends and um, Viking Viking uh, mythology and then um, Irish and Celtic uh, um, kind of myths and legends all built into one game. So uh, we de- it, that was public domain stuff, but it was no less. Uh, King Arthur is a very, very deep, surprisingly deep uh, lore. Um, so I've had a lot of experience doing that, thinking about it. Well, that is really, I imagine, very helpful for somebody who's a game director of a major franchise, right? Just having that experience of trying to tie everything together, create a consistent world where the pieces do fit so that players you know, understand it better. So what, when you were at Mythic, and you were one of the co-founders of, of Mythic, right? What, yeah. What was that journey like for you, taking a game from just a, a massive game like Dark Age of Camelot, one that's one of the seminal MMOs, from sort of conception to having massive amounts of players? So that's a broad yeah, question. But Yeah, that's actually a, a, a great question. So the game that I talked about five minutes ago when I was in college with, with some buddies and we put a MUD together, there wasn't a MUD because we actually wrote it all ourselves. Um, we actually launched that game as a dial-up BBS game, I think with eight phone lines, maybe nine. Um, and we made money on it. It was called Tempest, which is very funny because uh, uh, we got a cease and desist letter from Microsoft very quickly because they own the rights of the Tempest uh, arcade game. Uh, so we renamed it to Darkness Falls. And that ran in, in Vienna, Virginia, where we all were in the DC area where we lived. Um, and yes, yeah, so I was a founder of that company, um, which just was kind of fun hobby. But eventually we merged with... Um, uh, another game company, uh, Adventures Unlimited, also in the in the DC suburbs, and that became Mythic. So I would to to be a hundred percent truthful. I was a founder of the original company, but uh, but um, by the time it, it merged into Mythic, I'd kind of taken a step back. But then a year later, I joined pretty much full time, and then Mythic grew from there. So yeah, I was 
I, I was there from the early days. But we, the funny thing is, Dark Age of Camelot actually took that game, uh, Darkness Falls, um, as its server, and we added a graphical client to it based on some first-person shooters we had done a year or two earlier, and basically made Dark Age of Camelot out of technology we already had. And if Mythic did anything well, it was we reused technology in a really, really very efficient way so we could concentrate on the game part of the game and not on the tech so much. And the tech suffered a little bit because of it, um, but the games were came together very quickly and we knew them inside and out so we could make changes very quickly. That's great. And and I, it sounds... I, and, in terms of what happened when the game sort of hit its peak and then afterwards, you eventually retired, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, Camelot was was a very big game. Um, uh, as I say a lot when, when I'm asked about it, it, it was um, very much uh, a game that was appreciated by the game industry because it came out of nowhere. We were completely unknown. Um, it changed the way people think about MMOs, and I'm making air quotes, even though you can't see it, um, because it, we added a really meaningful PVP system, which had never been done in a massive game in that in that way um, before. So we are always held up as being kind of the critics' choice of that generation of what could be done in a game like that. And yeah, it was financially successful, but it wasn't nearly as financially successful as like Ultima Online or, or EverQuest or you know the other games of of, of that generation. But um, um, very much uh, was was a game that that the game industry took, and I still run into people to this day who say they got their start playing playing Dark Age Camelot, and then trying to figure out how we did things, and then uh, and then move on. But yeah, by 2006, uh, EA bought Mythic, and I uh, Camelot had kind of run its course by then, although it's still up and running because these games never die, uh, which is awesome. Um, but I took that chance just to step aside. I wanted to, to do some other things. And so I was uh, on the bench for a year while I did some consulting work. Uh, I consulted on uh, Star Wars The Old Republic for LucasArts back when it was just getting off the ground and, uh, and, 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 did, and did other things uh, in the industry and mostly just took some time <laughs> for myself and my family. Yeah. But you, but you came back out of retirement to join ZeniMax. So, yeah, I got the the call. I couldn't refuse. So uh, when uh, Bethesda uh, um, Bethesda saw what was happening around the industry, and they knew because everybody knows that the Elder Scrolls would just be absolutely perfect for for a game of this type, you know, uh, an air quote MMO air quote. And uh, so they they said, just tell us what you want. And I was like, I I want to make sure I have a studio in Baltimore in Hunt Valley, which is where I live, which is like an hour away from the um, headquarters of Bethesda. And, uh, and they said, that's great. Uh, when can you start? And so, oh, and the, the one rule was it has to, it, you are working on an Elder Scrolls MMO. Uh, I feebly tried to argue that I wanted to make a fallout one, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but it was, it was all Elder Scrolls from the beginning and, and, and I knew it. So, and it was great. I mean, those days, uh, um, to put it in perspective, this was 2007. Oblivion had only been out for two years, two or th two, I think two years. Uh, they hadn't yet launched Fallout 3, and Skyrim was not even on the on the horizon then. So, the conception of what an Elder Scrolls game was was Oblivion, not not Skyrim, which which became very uh, uh, very problematic later on in uh, ESO's development. But um, yeah, so uh, the first 
two, three months that I, that I worked for Bethesda, I actually sat with Todd Howard's team. He introduced me to everyone. Uh, he made very sure to tell them that this is Matt's game. This isn't our game. We're going to help him, but we're not in charge. Uh, we're going to make sure the IP is consistent, but um, this is his game and help him as you can, but don't get in the way. And that was a great, a great thing for him to do. And uh, because it kind of gave us the, the distance that we needed to come up with our own ideas and make our own mistakes, which of course we made a ton of, um, and then solve them. And so that was a very, very good way to start. I got to meet everyone. I still love those guys down there. We talk all the time. Um, and it made ESO it, what it is today. Well, when you started with that team, did you have a plan for how big the team might grow after launch? Uh, I probably did, but I'm sure that number was probably four times smaller than it actually ended up being. Cause you always think that when you start a project like this, that, that, uh, and I, ha I mean, I'd done this before, yeah. but mythic was done on a shoestring, like dark age of Camelot launched with like 32 developers. Like it was very, very small. Um, and the, the difference between that project and the ESO project was scale, like Camelot could get away with launching with one or two servers and not, you know, not, not a whole lot of uh, marketing support, <laughs> but you know, an Elder Scrolls game is going to have a massive launch and the, the infrastructure requirements to get ready for that just dwarf anything that we ever did at mythic by a factor of 10 or 15. Hmm. So, um, I knew that going in, but you don't really know it until you actually sit down and start uh, spreadsheeting out the hardware requirements, uh, what the what servers you're going to need, how many you're going to need, where they're going to be. And then you really get an idea of how many people you need because it's a lot. Well, can you ever accurately or even semi-accurately know prior to the game's actual launch what you're going to need to support players once it's out there? Yeah, it's much easier now. This was uh, so ESO. We really made those firm decisions about the back end of the game in the 2011, 2012 timeframe because okay. it came out in 2014. Um, so that was before there was a viable cloud solution for real time gaming. And so we did everything ourselves. We actually built our own private cloud hmm. um, with two giant cloud um, um, areas, one in Europe and one in uh, one in North America. And so. Um, we did it that way. And so it was much more difficult to figure out the cost because we were kind of on the bleeding edge. Now with modern cloud technology, you can actually sit down with Azure, AWS, you know, name your, name your cloud provider and actually go over your requirements and they can actually tell you kind of what the processing power you're going to need is and how it can spin up and spin down. And it's much, much easier to have experts there. We had to teach ourselves most of this because it just didn't exist on this scale. That makes sense. And I, it's great to know that it is a little bit easier today, but you know, just, just to stay on this topic for a couple minutes on the asset side, right? When you're, when you are building additional content releases, et cetera, how, what advice do you have for anybody who's getting into the live services space about predicting what you're going to need for players once the game is launched, assuming it's successful? Um, that is the the question <laughs> yeah. in this type of games. Like there is no no more important question than that. And the way we approached it was um, since most of us on the team had worked on these kind of games before, um, a lot of people from Mythic worked on the project, and we got people from other MMOs as well. The um, 
the approach we ended up taking was we can never create content faster than people can play it. So let's not even try. Um, instead of that, make great Elder Scrolls stories, like hand-created content quests. Uh, um, make sure that experience is rock solid because that's what people are going to expect. But also have systems kind of on the sides and deeper that are more systems-based and less um, hand-built. So, for example, uh, ESO has a PvP system, right, where you can go in and, and play forever. And, and it's, it's forever content. Um, it's like we have our own King of the Hill game inside of ESO, medieval style. Um, and so we did that on purpose because we knew we had players would have to have activities to do once they ran out of content before the next content drop mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. And so, so we have a, a, a thieving game where you can sneak around cities and pickpocket people and, and rob, uh, break in, break in, enter into people's houses. And there's a whole fencing underground outlaw system where you can go down under, under each city and sell all the stuff that you got and make gold. Like you can do that forever. No content is required or no content, no hand-built content is required once we do the basic system. We have a Dark Brotherhood assassination system where you just go ask a guy who he wants killed for the Dark Brotherhood, and then you go find that, 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 that whoever that is anywhere in the world and assassinate them, right? But you have to do it in a way that you don't get caught. And so there's always some, some, cool, some cool systems-driven um, things to do. And what we did do, we didn't do this well in the beginning because we were so snowed under with with the realities of launching a game this size. But over time, we've added more and more of these systems. So we added an antiquity system last year where you can become an archeologist and you get a clue and a little mini game, and then you go around the world and dig. And finally you find, you know, a, a relic that you can put in your house or sell for gold. So, you know, we keep adding these little systems, little, they're, they're pretty big. We keep adding these gameplay types uh, regularly just to give players things to do. That is a fantastic thing, approach. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The interesting thing we're finding out now is now we have 10 of these systems in the game and all of them need content regularly because you don't want to assassinate the same guy over and over and over again, right? You want something. And so, and you don't want to keep digging up the same antiquities. So more and more of our dev cycle is starting to, to grind to a halt, uh, trying to come up with or trying to fit in the time for our new assets for all of the systems that aren't hand created, which yeah. was <laughs> against the point of doing those uh, to begin with. But, uh, but we'll figure it out. Well, when you look at player behavior in the game, do you find that it's, an, it's a balance between the persistent system driven content and then the handcrafted content? So what we see is more there are different kinds of players and they gravitate to different types of gameplay. Um, and I say this a lot, and it's totally true. If you ask five ESO players to describe the game they're playing, they'll describe five different games mm. because there's so many things to do. Like one person can literally do nothing except craft gear for his guild, right? That's a legitimate play style in ESO. Uh, another one is just taking thieving contracts and stealing shit from people's houses. Totally legitimate. One is, you know, saving the world in whatever in the quest that we have running that uh, the story that would like all of that is valid and players tend to gravitate to the gameplay that they like. The, the magic happens, though, is when we as designers can start to move players from one of those groups to another group so that they can experiment more because let's face it, it's an Elder Scrolls game. In the early days, especially, most people had no multiplayer game experience, especially not mul massively multiplayer, where you see people running around all the time in the game world. Um, 
So we made it very easy to solo through all of the stories because mm-hmm. we knew that's what the market was. Um, but we try to put larger, what we call world bosses here and there in the same lanes that they tend to run through on the solo stories, they'll run across an enemy that they can't kill by themselves and they'll see other players attacking it and they can just join in. We have a soft grouping system. So everyone that participates, even if they're in a group or not get, get credit for the kill and get all the loot. And so eventually players learn that they can group up with other people by just standing with them and fighting monsters. And then hopefully they, they start communicating with them and then they join guilds and then they really start to experience the magic. Hmm. Okay. So you have, it sounds like there is a a balance, maybe not immediately, but eventually you've got players really experimenting with, with everything. Yeah. Um, that being said, most of the people that play the game love the solo content more than anything. Okay. Um, and, and we have kind of an annual cadence where we have a big meaty story chapter that comes out once a year. We have a group of players that comes in plays the story content every year and then goes away for 11 months and comes back and plays the story again. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a subscription-based game. You can do that all you want. And then we have some players that dip in and out and do co-op dungeons and loot chases. And uh, so it's a very, very dynamic uh, set of systems that gives players pretty much the chance to do what they want. So you mentioned subscriptions. And I want to talk just briefly about monetization. When you were starting the design of the game, what came first, mechanics or monetization? Well, when we developed the game, it was subscription. It was a subscription required game. Uh, so it was very easy. Yeah. <laughs> we, d- okay. we didn't think about it at all because we, uh, we knew that they were going to be, be paying $15 a month. But, but, and, that, uh, but that initial decision, right? How did you get to that decision? What was, what was the process you went through to, to come up with whether a subscription would work? And I know you changed it, but I'd just yep, be really interested yep. in going back and yeah, so uh, many there are a couple different answers to that. The, the 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 most important of which is it was the predominant way people paid for games in 2007 when the project was spinning up. I mean, World of Warcraft is only three years old, you know, yeah. at, at at this time, and it was you know, so it was it was a huge, reliable, easy to forecast out monetization system, which made the publisher very happy that they could, uh, it was very easy to figure out. You didn't need to worry about monthly average users and, you know, uh, ARPU and all of the monetization stuff, which was coming out then. You didn't have to worry about all that. You just knew uh, you could multiply the the player base times 15 and you would have the amount of revenue it was making. So it was was an easy concept and that's that's why we did it. Um, And it was the thing to do. Um, Obviously, um, that changed uh, after launch, mostly because the Elder Scrolls world not used to subscriptions. <laughs> and we decided to do a console version of the game, which came out a year after. And the console world at that time was definitely not used to subscriptions. So we knew that we had to make a change then. What was some of the decision? What were some of the uh, processes you went through in deciding what it would end up as? Like when you had to, I mean, monetization is tough to discuss and it, and there's no easy answer ever for it because everybody wants everything for free. How did you, how did you, what was your trial and error process if you had one for figuring it out? So we had the extreme luxury, which nobody can ever replicate of having a giant game with a millions of users um, that was already established that people knew the value proposition of because it had been out and there were YouTube, YouTube streams of it. And 
but it was locked behind a paywall. Hmm. And then we had the opportunity to say, oh, guess what? There's no more paywall. Just jump in and play, right? So that's a much easier message than please play my game for free and let me show you why you need to spend money on it, which we never had to do because people already knew the game. And so we approached monetization then, and we still do with um, the game designers design the monetization. Not There's not e-commerce designers because game designers understand the game. And at that mm. point, we knew what players liked. We knew what mounts they liked, right? We knew that most players wouldn't want to spend a lot of money for, uh, for a, a glowy sparkle cat mount, uh, as we call it. But so we gave players free in-game mounts, you know, horses and whatnot. But if you wanted to spend on on the sparkle cat you could get the sparkle cat and it didn't do anything different than the free horse did it went the same speed and they do it just looks cool and so our whole monetization system is based on its customization that we're selling not any in-game power were there any loud debates about that on the team whether one oh yeah so so how did those i'd love to know how those went because we have similar conversations at insomniac uh you know, from time to time about how if you're going to ask somebody to pay for something that's in addition to what they paid for the game initially, should it confer additional abilities or be purely cosmetic? So what was that like? Well, so ESO is, is at heart a massively multiplayer role-playing game. So there are so many systems in it that we couldn't touch because it's so complicated that even if we, even if we had wanted to do any kind of it, uh, player advantage by buying, like in a real sense, like do more damage in PvP or anything, I don't know if we could do it. But nobody would want uh, an arms race in PvP in an Elder Scrolls game. It yeah. just doesn't make sense, right? It's just it just doesn't fit. It's not the, the players that play that ESO aren't those players. You know, they want to make sure that the person they're fighting on the battlefield does not have any advantage. And it's 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 flat. They might be dressed in a cooler outfit. Right. But they're not going to do any more damage. And so that was the philosophy that we had when we designed the system. And the number one rule was do no harm. Yeah, that was like the mantra for for all the designers working on it was do no harm. And so um, we, we do. I mean. The studio was made up of a lot of diehard MMO players, and uh, at the time especially, and you know the idea of, of buy to play and play forever was pretty controversial with them. But yeah. I think that lasted for about five minutes after console launch, uh, when you know millions and millions and millions and millions of people logged in at the same time and uh, showed that the, that it, that it very much worked and the concept was great. Well, it's great, and it, I think that is the standard today. Uh, and it and it's great to see. And I, the debates I talked about we had were, were were older debates, but it was always fun too as a non live services developer uh, to watch what was happening on the in the MMO world and how those uh, how teams like yours were you know were were tackling it and leading the way. So so speaking of that, so for for any developer out there who is considering moving into maybe not the MMO space but the live services space what are some what are some misperceptions you think people have about live services games wow that's an open-ended question uh i think like based on talking to people at 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 conferences and um kind of get questions we get from new employees i think the the thing that can never be forgotten with making a live service game is that it's a game, 
Like it, it's not a monetization machine. It's not a, no one is going to play a game that feels like a, you know, it's just there to extract money from you. Right. It has to be a good game first. Um, and if it isn't a good game, nobody's going to play it. And th that's the approach we've always taken. Um, and the good game can sometimes get really, really caught up in the underlying technology working or not working. And so, um, um, as, as I've said in many interviews, uh, you know, it's making a great game is very important, but it's the IT exercise that the game runs on that is as important for long-term retention, hmm. right? It's, it's, you can make the game fun, but it has to work. Yeah. And um, it's very difficult. These are extraordinarily complex games, techno technologically speaking, um, on the client. But then when you bring the server into account and, and the expertise you need on the team and the, and the hardware you need on the back end and the communications between the two, it, it becomes a very daunting task. But if you start out trying to solve that technical problem first, you sometimes miss the fact that it has to be a good game. Yeah. That's that's a great point about the technical challenges. I mean, what you what you all did in moving to one world, right, where thousands and thousands of players share, share the same world is really technically impressive. And that must have been really hard when you all did that. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's funny. Uh, very few people understand that about ESO. Uh, that it is different from other games of this type because we really only have two servers, one in Europe and one in North America. Um, and the reason why we did that is it, we wanted to solve two problems. Uh, one, we wanted to ensure there was always a healthy PvP population because PvP players um, are always a small subset of your, of your group, but they're a very important part of your group um, because they are super engaged and tend to evangelize for the game. But in a, in a shard-based game, um, if the population of the server falls below a certain amount, PvP becomes not viable. And, and it's just no fun. And literally the reason why we came up with our mega server technology was to solve that problem. Um, the second problem was every game at launch of this type, especially an Elder Scrolls type game, um, you get an initial rush of players that play, you know, 18 hours a day, and then they slow down playing over time. But that means you either really overbuy servers in the beginning um, and have to merge them later, um, or you just have them in endless queues forever. Um, and the, the PR hit for merging servers for games of this type is huge. It, it sends out a message that you don't have as many people playing as you used to. Um, and so we avoid all of that because we just have one server and you always see the optimal number of people in the zone that you're in because every zone is instanced. And we make sure that we set that number to, to, to something that feels lively but not too overcrowded. And then if more players log in in that zone, we spawn off a new zone. And you're in that one and you can always you i'm sorry about that uh you can always teleport to uh to a uh um a friend anywhere you want um and and you'll be put in the same uh same shard as them so it's uh you know it's 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 a very interesting technology that can be used in a lot of interesting ways has it gotten easier to implement uh, this use your word mega servers today than it was when you all pioneered it Yes, absolutely. Um, in order to make mega servers, we had to design our own our own private cloud 
to run them because it's obviously it's a bunch of bare metal servers in a data center. And then we, but we had to write yeah. the software that kind of ties them all together and spawns off the instances correctly to the different, to the diff, to the correct places and then ensure the latency between them was acceptably low. Um, now you can do that in the cloud and uh, because that's the way the cloud works is you're, you're basically accessing power uh, in a data center and you can set it up the way you want and it's already set up and you don't have to plug in, you know, a thousand blades in Frankfurt, Germany, right? You, you have uh, the services do that for you. There are likely a bunch of online developers who are laughing at me and going, that guy's an idiot. But I, but thank you for sharing that because being in the single player world, it's not something we have to deal with uh, very often. So that's it's really great. It's great to hear. Uh, but that said, there still are so few large scale online games out there today. And, and I recall also, you mentioned the EverQuest and World of Warcraft early days when, and Dark Age of Camelot. Do you feel like in today's world, there's still that sort of natural limit to the number of large MMOs that can be running? I think there is a market for as many of these games as can be made because it's a lot of fun to play these kind of games. Absolutely. I think the I, I think the limit is more on the publishers that are willing to take the risk to invest in them because it's a large endeavor. Um, it's very expensive and uh, it requires expertise across in a really large slice of the tech world. You know, everything from normal, normal AAA game dev stuff, you know, to seriously to now Kubernetes, uh, you know, cloud uh, engineering experts to uh, it just requires a really, really large group of, 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 of people that have very specific experience. And that experience is, of course, in demand across many industries now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the whole right. world it runs on this kind of technology. It's not, it's not just video games. So uh, it can be hard to find the right people because they're so in demand, especially for the, for the backend cloud stuff. Well, you know, you mentioned risk, right? And the, the idea of building this very expensive game and then keeping your fin fingers crossed that you're going to have millions of players join, subscribe, use microtransactions is, is kind of insane. So, you know, and I know that you had a launch that wasn't perfect for ESO. How did you keep the team going and how did you keep faith alive as you were revising the game, bringing in more and more players? Yeah, so we had the ace up, up our sleeve, which was Elder Scrolls, hmm. right? It's a huge brand that people know and understand. Um, and so, yes, when we, when we initially launched, it was just on PC in 2014. Um, about a year before that, we made the decision to do a console version because Skyrim had come out and most of the people that played Skyrim were on console, not on PC. Obviously, the PC base is huge because the Skyrim base was huge in general. But it, so we, the first five or six years of ESO's development, we, we weren't planning on doing a console version. So when the PC version hit, we were already well down the road of doing the console version. And so... Um, we had a year to do it in between the, uh, the two launches. So we saw that the response wasn't what we wanted. It wasn't terrible. Like it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't certainly what the forecasts were and what an Elder Scrolls game, um, should have done. So, um, we took that year to come up with a lot of the systems actually I just talked about, which was the thieving system, the, the, the thief system, the, which, which we called the justice system, um, 
those kinds of systems, we had a lot more sandboxy type stuff. Um, and we really focused the team on let's make the console version as good as we can, because that's where the larger market is. Hmm. And so, um, our numbers really, really were important to us then because, of course, we looked at the number of people logging in, even even in a subscription game, and we really looked at what those players were doing when they were playing. And we we just worked with the team to do more of that <laughs> and less of what those players weren't doing. So um, in the end, we, we, we identified a core group of players, which aren't very which wasn't very large in, in, in and of themselves, but they logged in every day and played on PC and and every day for that year and we're like obviously we're doing something right because there's there's a market here um and let's make sure we keep whatever magic they're experience keep that intact and bring that into the console version and so um the combination of doing that in those systems we uh that, that we put in the game and refined and fixed a lot of problems um that made the console and then dropped the required subscription of course right before console came out and that made the console version immense like yeah. it was huge servers melted like four seconds after they went live because there were so many people trying to log in um you know you, you call that a good problem to have but uh but it was not necessarily a, a good couple of weeks for us but uh it was uh very tiring but also very gratifying that so many people wanted to play and uh it was it was a lot i think we had upwards of 500,000 people concurrently playing yeah you know, when console launched which is which is crazy on it on any level for a game like this um, so it was uh, it was it was a good time the team got its mojo back definitely in the weeks running up to console launch because we knew how big it was going to be going into it and uh, it's worked out worked out ever since well so for for those who are thinking about going into the live services field and don't necessarily have the audience built in, or have the, the promise of a big console game, what advice do you have who for those who are on the precipice? And do you, and as a sort of a corollary, are there any metrics that you advise or you've thought of to sort of create a go, no go point where it just becomes either, it, it makes sense or it just doesn't and it's time to just walk away? Yeah, I think there's a couple of points you can triangulate. One is engagement. And every game kind of defines that differently. And you need to determine the engagement stat for your game that makes sense. For us, it was a combination of how long are they playing per session? How many times per week do they log in? How many quests do they complete? How many players do they kill? And we had, I think we put 15 things together. Um, and, and that was our engagement metric. Mm. And uh, we and that's how we identified that group that I just talked about. Because this one group was just it was like a hundred percent on all of them <laughs> for forever. And, uh, and, and so that's what made us start, start looking at that group. Um, obviously engagement doesn't work if only two players are engaged. So the other, uh, the other metric is how many people are logging in, in general, how many people are picking up the game, installing it. And so the two of those are the, are the ones that we, that we generally use. And obviously now that the game's so big and has so many data points, we have a whole bunch more than that. But the, the should we do this decision was definitely based on are people having fun? Are they playing? Are they posting about it on Reddit? Hmm. You know, the, those kind of engagement things that, that you always look for. And there was a healthy community there. It was small, but it was healthy. That's great advice to, to be looking at that specifically. And it's nice. It's a nice alternative from purely looking at the monetary side. Right. I, I totally agree. If it, people are having fun and they're talking about it, that's really promising. Right. 
Yeah. Now, obviously, now we look at the monetary side a little more. Back then, it was still subscription required. So we knew that everybody that was playing per month was spending 15 bucks. So, um, but yeah, that that was it, it was just the overall game health report is what is what we called it. And we, we mm-hmm. took that very, very seriously. So when it comes to keeping those players engaged, right, I want to come back to the content pipeline. So how do you and the team establish the right cadence for content updates? So, uh, originally our content update, so it's always been quarterly. It's every 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, the reason why we did it quarterly, uh, um, started at, at launch of 2014 because we suddenly realized how much work we had to do. And that was literally the fastest that we could put builds together in a reasonable timeframe and reasonable amount of QA to fix problems that cropped up in launch. Uh, Sadly, players got used to those quarterly updates, and we have done them every quarter, every twelve weeks since 2014. So, uh, so for seven years, we we literally launched launch an, an update every twelve weeks. And it's, I, uh, I got to ask. Insane. So, what would happen? <laughs> what would happen if if one quarter you said, "Hey, folks, we're just going to do it. We're yeah. going to do it in a another six weeks instead <laughs> of uh, at the end of the quarter." Would you yeah. have riots in the game? Oh, 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 yeah. It'd be, yeah. The game's going down, you know, they're, they're in trouble. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it would be madness. Um, and people still complain that we don't update enough. And it's like <laughs> every 12 weeks is literally, and of course we're on like seven platforms now, you know, it's like old gen consoles, current gen consoles, Mac, PC, Stadia, right. And all of those have to get updated every 12 weeks. And it's, it's, it's a shell game like of, of, cert processes through different chains and uh, midnight phone calls begging for uh, for help uh, with different platform holders and uh, right it's 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 what you would go through you know for a single player game in an extremely stressful six week period you know and, and that's our life <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. you make it sound so attractive <laughs> but you know, after you do it for a while there's a cadence uh, you develop relationships with people at the at the at the platforms um, and they know what to expect. We know what to expect. The more trust is built up and, and it works like it works, but we have a giant publishing team, a small P publishing team, like game publishing team at Zoss. Like very, it's a very large team that does nothing but monitor live services. And that includes our internal builds. And mm-hmm. that includes the status of uh, where each build is in the pipeline. You just have to do it. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned how the community, is vocal and that the community won't necessarily change the cadence of the updates, but I imagine they have some influence on what you're building. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a a great question because um, we started this at that 2014, 2015 timeframe too, is we, we, we looked at three things to determine what we needed to do to make the game better. And we stuck to that. And that's pretty much direct community feedback through our community team or through, you know, Twitter, Reddit, forums. Um, one is actual metrics, like looking at what people are actually doing in the game, which is, you, you know, is often not that, not what they say they're doing. Um, and the third one is what we think should, we should do hmm. as players and designers of the game. Um, and if you triangulate those three things, you'll pretty much come up with what should be done at any point in time on a game like this. Do you have a pretty consistent overlap then between what developers slash players at the company say versus players who are not developing the game say? 
Yes, but not always. Okay. Like so, sometimes we do things because we know we need to drag the player base into some new features or do so, a new system like antiquity. When we did antiquities that came out of the blue, no one was asking for it because we knew we needed to add another sandboxy type system to the game. So, but those are always done very intentionally. They're not, they're not done through, uh, through just guesswork. Like we're, we, we're pretty sure we need to add something and we do it. Got it. Well, so, so as far as the balance between what you're doing for new players versus veteran players, how do you decide th that? Uh, another great question. <laughs> we, uh, um, I'm giving out all the secrets here. So uh, we uh, we have a a cadence every year, which is four updates, right? It's about every 12 weeks, um, every quarter. Um, we target each of those updates at a different type of player. So generally, we have two what we call dungeon DLCs, which are uh, two dungeons apiece, so four dungeons each year, which are aimed very much at the co-op co-op gamer it's, it's groups of four usually um that are on a loot chase and just want to go in and, and grind through dungeons and as you've done in mmos forever right there's yeah. a, there's a big big number of people that just want to do that um so but in each of those we have a normal mode and a veteran mode um so the content actually you can pick which version you want to go in and the veteran mode is usually the same story in the same geo as the as the as the regular version but sometimes there's an extra boss sometimes there's there's an extra room kind of thing so we make sure we think about the veteran users when we do things like that uh, the other update is the big story update for more traditional elder scrolls players who just want to log in and play a 30 hour story right uh, of of you know the it, this uh, last year was Graymore. This year was Blackwood, um, and it's literally you. You go to a part of Tamriel, and there's a story there, just like you would have in a in a in a single player Elder Scrolls game. Um, and then the fourth quarter one is usually a smaller version for story, where we add um, a, a solo arena or some kind of uh, interesting metric that is a little different, just to kind of give players something out of left field. So, so we try to hit kind of the the different player groups over the course of the year with different types of content. Well, I definitely appreciate you explaining that. That's really awesome to be able to go to hear in depth how that's all planned out. So I hope you didn't give away too much of the magic. No, uh, no, no. Uh, lost in there, though, is the fact that we do a 30-hour RPG every year. Wow. <laughs> as well as do all the other stuff. So it's it's a big team and it's, and it's a, a juggling act. You know, keeping it all running and keeping it performing across so many platforms, but it's it's amazing. Like we we love it. Well, I have to ask, how big is the team? Um, I think all in, we're in the four hundred ish. Okay, that's that's a large team. Yeah, a lot of folks. Yeah. So uh, going back to community, uh, in terms of content updates and, and and how you plan them, I, I totally get it. But I also am have been really impressed with how transparent you are with the community. Your updates are fantastic, and you know. In terms of timing, how often are you talking to the community? Or how often do you think is optimal to sort of communicate with community? So it's it's as needed in some ways, but the our major communication with 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 the user base, uh, the way they get the most information is since we do updates so often, you know, quarterly, we write patch notes. And our patch notes, if you read through them, are like are, are explanatory in a way that most patch notes are not. Right. Like, why did we do this? Here's a comment from a dev on on why we're doing this. And that comes out regularly every three months. Um, and players get huge insight into what we do and what we don't do based based on that alone. 
Um, obviously, we have forums, we have Reddit, we have community managers, we we um, we monitor monitor social media. We do a lot of uh, we do at least two or three either live uh, pre-COVID or or streamed events where um, like for QuakeCon, for E3, for um, usually we have an announced show in December. We get some devs in front of a camera or in front of people on a stage and make announcements and talk about the game and what we're going to do in the upcoming year. And so we really try to kind of mix and match our, our communication based on what it is we're talking about. And what do you find, or do you find that there is a consistent group of players who will give you feedback, whether it's on the updates or the content themselves? And, and is that a small percentage of your overall player base or is it large? It, it's small. Um, uh, it's it, very small. Like most gamers just want to play the game. They don't want to harass the developers. Like if they don't like something, they'll just walk away. Um, yeah. Right. So that, that's just the way it works. Um, but the players that, and I'm using air quotes here, complain the most are the ones that are actually the most invested in the game and mm-hmm. the ones that have been playing the longest and understand you sometimes better than the developers do like what the experience is. And um, we know who, who those people are generally and who they are on, on Reddit and on our forums. And, and we read their posts with, uh, with extra urgency sometimes because uh, they, fi- they find things we don't know about sometimes. Do you think there's a, a difference between the, the, that, that, that vocal group and the rest of the players? Can we even call it the silent majority? In terms of what they're absolutely are. true, yes. Okay. Uh, you always have to look at it through the lens that these are the people that are usually giving you the most detailed feedback are the ones who are super knowledgeable about the game, have a very specific play style where they want, usually mm-hmm. they're on the much more. I'm going to say hardcore, although that term is becoming less and less relevant these days. But they're the ones that actually try to theory craft through systems and come out with the best possible damage per second and the best possible damage mitigation. Most players just want to have fun. They don't want to think about that. Um, but there is space in, in feedback for both of those. Okay. Like, you know, I, if, uh, it's, it's hard to give feedback on a, on a quest and in a game like this, like I didn't like it. I like the story, you know, this character was too transparent. We, we read all of that and we take that, but that's, that that can be very subjective, but a lot of the feedback from the the more the more hardcore gamers there there is logs of data attached and uh, like they it's very very obje- very 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 um, objective. So well, yeah, it sounds like it really helps for balance and tuning. These are the people you yeah. rely on, right? This yeah, is your, your and, small and you just have, team of of QA almost, right? Yeah, and you just have to understand that those players that play the game a lot love the game, have a huge amount of passion for it but they might not be speaking for everyone all the time. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Well, one of the things you mentioned far earlier was the decision to move to consoles. And I, that's un, I think it's unusual for MMOs, right? I mean, how many MMOs really have taken the dive uh, and tried to support both consoles and PCs? So were you all excited about that when you first, <laughs> or, or terrified? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh... Uh, let me see. When we made the decision to go to console, it was I think in 2012, something like that. So two years before launch, on the most complicated game ever ever made, <laughs> uh, the decision is made to add another platform, which has never run a game of this type. Yeah. So yes, it was a huge, 
Um, and in fact, we had to put it on the shelf for a while because we had to take everyone off of the console version and, and put them on the actual game to get it to launch because that's just the way these games work. Um, so it was the right decision at the time. And I w- I'm not second guessing it at all because it, it led to our, a huge success. But it was a wrench when it was when it was decided, um, especially because we didn't have any console expertise on the team at all. We had to hire, mm. you know, uh, console programmers. Um, we used uh, Iron Galaxy, uh, the, the the amazing outsourcers. Uh, they lent a lot of uh, console expertise to us uh, f- for that whole process. We couldn't have done it without them. So uh, it was. Uh, it was a team effort, and it was a lot, and it, it was it was a lot of effort. But the game really lends itself to console. Like yeah. uh, we have a, a limited bar combat system and ability system, which really mapped well to well to controller. Um, I, I know the the community out there is skeptical because they thought we were designing it for console from the beginning, but we weren't. We we actually decided on having a more Elder Scrolls style. Uh, you pick and choose which abilities you want to use. Um, but you can't use them all at the same time. And so we had made that decision years before, and it just happened to map very well to controller. So even today I play on PC. I mean, I play on all the platforms, but my main character is on PC, but I play with a controller because it just feels so good. Well, when Skyrim came out, how much did that influence what you were doing with the console version of the game? So uh, as, as I was talking about when I first started, Oblivion was the North Star, right? Yeah. And uh, nobody knew that Skyrim was the greatest game of all time until it launched. And then it was the greatest game of all time. And I'm not saying that lightly. So it changed everything for us because many of the design decisions we had made were out the door. Like our art style was wrong. Our, uh, the tone was wrong. The, cause people were, were going to be coming directly from Skyrim in, into ESO. Um, so we had a lot of, long meetings, whiteboarding out what we needed to change in the game because of Skyrim's success. And we had Todd came up and talked to the team. Um, and uh, in, I think, whatever, between 2011 and 2014, we made all those changes. And those changes included fully voiced NPCs. There were no voiced NPCs in uh, ESO before that. Um, a lootable world where you could pick up objects in the world and, and sell them or use them or use them in the crafting system. That wasn't in there before Skyrim. Um, first person mode, it was a third person only game before Skyrim. We put in first person. Um, I know I'm missing a lot, but those were the three big ones right there. And we did all of that in 18 months or so. Wow. So, wow. That's, I didn't know that any of that. That's, that's impressive. And it's also fascinating to hear because it's, I, I think all of us who develop have been in mid-production on something and a big game comes out, whether it's ours or somebody else's and, and the development team goes, wait a second, <laughs> the bar yeah, has now, just now been imagine that game. Imagine that game is from your sister studio at the same publisher. And right you now, so you're probably yeah. emailing them frantically going, what are you guys trying to do to us? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a, there was a very good mood around the company at that time, yeah. even though we had a lot of work to do because it was just so good. Yeah, I mean, I it's just so good. So having been making consoles and console and PC games, um, MMOs for now, a long time and having been in the console war- world with this game for over six years, right? What are, what's different now for you about developing for consoles versus PCs? Are there any un- unexpected gotchas that you discovered along the way? Yeah. I, th- I think the first thing we discovered is that, um, 
the old uh, and and you and you'll know this um, from your experiences. The old uh, adage of uh, you know PC has hardcore gamers and console has casual gamers is totally not true. Mm. Like we have people that hardcore the shit out of ESO on console. Like I mean, it's uh, at one point I think that one of the best PvP players in the world was on Xbox. Like it's it's totally not true. Like uh, there are hardcore players on every platform. Um, and that's just the way, just the way it is. Um, another thing we found out is, uh, and it was a little true in the, um, Xbox one PS4 days where it was definitely a step in the right direction, but this new generation are, I'm going to say, I'll, I'll say it this way. They are so PC like that it makes transitioning between them, uh, on the dev side, the easiest it's ever been like for us, especially. Um, in fact, we just updated our, our console versions with, uh, with what we're calling console enhanced, which are native clients for the PlayStation 5 and the uh, Xbox Series S and X. And we did that by essentially taking all of our highest end PC stuff and just porting it over and obviously doing the massaging that you need to do to make it work specifically for the platform. And now those versions are amazingly good like the new the current gen consoles are so powerful that that it it's it's it amazes me every time i, I agree I, I mean having just played uh, eso on ps5 it is it's super cool to see you taking advantage of what the ps5 can do uh was that did that influence any of the or is it influencing any of the features that you're you know as a team discussing no we've never I guess really I can't had talk to about the new features but Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I can talk about it generally. Um, I, I will say that it um, the new the new generation makes us feel like we can deliver the same experience acro across uh, all the platforms like the old day, the, like in the, the reason why I'm being so hesitant is because we still support ESO fully on, on PS4 and, and Xbox One. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it's still a great experience. Like it, it is a, a, a legitimately good experience, but those machines are limited. I mean, they came out in 2012, 2013, and that's just their older tech now. And, uh, we need to be cognizant not to ram so much stuff into the game that they stop working on the base, base consoles of, of, of the previous gen. Um, we had to go, I think six months last year without adding any new animations to the game. Cause we ran out of memory on PS4, Xbox One, right? And so it's great for us to make the console enhanced versions and they're amazing, but we can't forget about the fact that we have a huge player base on the others as well. And so uh, I always have to temper it with that. Got it. Well, just to wrap up with a couple more questions about, just broader questions about MMOs. Uh, I've never had an opportunity to ask anybody this, but do you think that we're going to see the equivalent of Ready Player One someday where we really are completely immersed in a world like ESO where it is our, it's, it's our life. It's interesting. Uh, you know, so ready player one and, uh, you know, snow crash, you know, the, the metaverse, uh, both have one thing in common, which I don't know if people picked up on is that they were made completely outside of corporate involvement by rebel hackers, basically. Right. Mm. If you think about, hero protagonist and snow crash. And then, uh, the guy's name in, in Ray player one, who I forget, right. They weren't working for anyone. They were just doing cool shit on the side and, and invented this amazing thing. And I think the way that those metaverses are portrayed in, in those particular books, 
um, are a result of that, where it's anarchy, right? You can basically do anything. There, there's some rules, but who knows? And I don't think a, the corporate structure of the way those things are made today would allow that. Hmm. Like, there's always going to be exclusives. There's always going to be e- exclusion of things they don't want. Um, and so I think until that problem is solved in a way that makes sense, it's going to be very difficult to get mass players, players, mass people, participants uh, into one virtual world. Yeah. But the point that you make about the, you know, people who are not part of a corporation, uh, smaller groups of folks who are just who have, you know, a vision that is more possible today than it ever has been. Right. Because- uh, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is certainly, I, I, I love that thought. The fact that we may all be playing in this incredible world 20 years from now that has nothing to do with any of the corporations uh, that uh, we are all part of or associated with. I will only point to Minecraft, right? Yeah. Perfect example. It's like, that's where the next big thing is going to come from is from something like that, where completely out of the blue, not, um, self-funded, not, uh, not funded by any, uh, VC or, or company because who would have funded Minecraft in 2011, right? Nobody would have. That's right. And it's, it changed the world. Indeed. So as a, as an MMO developer, what do you want from the perfect MMO? (laughs) I always see, first of all, I rarely use the term MMO because it's freighted with so much baggage. Uh, but I always look at it as a virtual world. It's like, even if it's limited, even if it's an Elder Scrolls virtual world or, or with 76, a Fallout virtual world, or, you know, um, I prefer to think of it as virtual worlds because you can't, you don't have to limit the way you think about something if you call it a virtual world instead of a game. Right. So we could, and, and you look at Roblox and, 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 and platforms like that, which go out of their way to be platforms and virtual worlds and not games. And, uh, and I think there's a reason for that, that, um, it allows the participants in the virtual world to add to the content of the world. And I think that is the Holy grail, uh, the, the way Roblox does it, the way Minecraft does it. Um, it's very hard and required because humans are humans requires a lot of moderation, but the feeling that you can add to the world while being in the world, I think is, is, is the Holy grail. That is fantastic. Well, Matt, thank you for sharing as much you've shared a ton today. Thank you for sharing all of it. Thank you for sharing your, your thoughts about the future. Uh, and I hope there are some aspiring virtual world developers out there who are going, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> totally my pleasure. And I hope there's a lot more people out there that want to do this because uh, while it's not always the easiest part of game development, it's definitely very, very rewarding because you get to sit in a game watching people play your game. And there's nothing like that. That's great. Thank you, Matt. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.
the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, is excited to share that the 2022 DICE Summit and DICE Awards will be returning in person to the gorgeous Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino and Delano Hotel in Las Vegas on February 22nd to 24th, 2022. We'll be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the DICE Awards and bringing together industry leaders to share their ideas about the many facets of the interactive entertainment industry. Stay tuned to www.interactive.org and our Twitter, at official underscore AIAS, for more details coming soon, including special anniversary rates. We can't wait to see you again.